0: This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. Fusco, michael Flores. how the hell are you not that anyone in canada who listens to this podcast would know for weeks and weeks where the hell you've been (laughs) i've been pretty good how about you i mean i don't know why don't you tell me where you've been i mean like you certainly haven't been recording the ancestral recall podcast it's been an interesting month i have been like in and about the city working on some different film shoots um magic I went to the Invitational in Roanoke. You win the Invitational? No, I went to the Invitational. I didn't win the Invitational. I wish I won the Invitational. You didn't, though. No. no. I, I day 2 doesn't count for anything. <laughs> uh, did you make but... any money on your day two? No. Okay, so <laughs> but I did this top sounds eight. like a non-story to me. Yeah, I did top eight the Classic on the class. Sunday. How many rounds is Classic? Uh, I believe it was seven rounds. Yeah. So it's just the size of a store PPTQ. No. How big was the PPTQ you played in last week? How many rounds? A lot, like six. Disgusting. Like six. It was six. When you it was, w- was, I'm sorry, it was like six. <laughs> what number is near six when you're above sixty four players? Seven. Okay. So okay, what you're saying decide. is the Did classic the, you played had was like, the same size as the short like PPTQ you 200, played over two hundred players, G fifty or something. And they had the same number of rounds. Had, had more rounds. I had one more round. No. Your store PvTQ, if it's over sixty four players, yeah, is seven rounds. This one was six rounds, so it wasn't. It was capped at sixty four then. The one the PBTQA I went to. This sounds dubious to me. All right. Anyway, so the classic. Um, how did you? You just bombed out of it, right? No, I I made top eight. You made top eight. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> did you play like Mardu or Black Green? No, or? I played a uh, ban. Cards? Bant cards? <laughs> I don't know how to explain this deck. Uh about uh, a, a ramp deck? It's a, it is a Traverse ramp a Traverse the Uvenwald, cycling enchantments. Spring to mind. Spring to mind. Deck. Spring to mind. Deck. So um, we'll cut to the chase. I thought that was a pretty cool deck when I looked at it. Seems like it would get a lot of improvement from uh, the new set, Hour of Devastation. So Roman and I actually, was it last weekend? We just like went to Starbucks and played like... <laughs> Eleven hours. Roman is younger than me. Like he's twenty years younger than me or something. How old are you? I'm twenty two. Twenty two. Just turned twenty two. Happy birthday, baby. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about you. Roman's twenty two. So, what well, he like has no no fortitude. Like I'm like, let's do another ten games. Oh he's just like <laughs> <sighs> it was eleven o'clock, and we moved from the Starbucks to Whole Foods at that point. So, <laughs> Roman, I'm not gonna talk up talk this this stuff up. I'm not gonna do it. So. Hilarious, emoji-splattered repartee between us, right, to meeting each other. you know, If you don't follow me on Twitter, it was was hilarious. It was unicorns, crystal balls, British flag. But you threw me for a loop. Roman, talk about the neighborhood that that we hung out in. Oh, we hung uh, down by Battery Park. Yeah, who lives there. You live there. What would you say about, say, the Starbucks or the Whole Foods? Probably the nicest Starbucks slash Whole Foods I've, I've been to, at least in the, the, the New Jersey, New York area. The Whole Foods seems like a great place to have like a PTQ, right? <laughs> like, right? It's huge. Yeah, there were a lot of seats. Tons of seating, all open. You could have just run a food, PTQ. Food there. downstairs. Yeah, Infinity Food, right? It's in a Whole Foods. So we, we play tested, and uh, I like some of the cards. Our Hour of Promise seems like a great card. Mm. We played some Spring to Mind. So maybe maybe we'll have a a deck list coming out of these experiences. Congratulations on your classic top eight. Thank you. Maybe maybe you should have played a little bit better, two or three rounds better, and you would be a classic champion, and and therefore you know just get another like maybe plaque or. (laughs) Trophy, or maybe just like a little button, right? <laughs> a button that says, Come in Huska, classic champion, That you could put next to your, your button for regional winning. It's right? not a button, it's a trophy for each <laughs> Yeah, a t- trophy for each But you would then be qualified for the next Invitational. Which you not? I, But for doing... I'm not qualified for... <laughs> I'm, I'm qualified for the RPTQ in a month. Nice! We already went over that, though. Nice. But I'm four points away for Star City Games points away from qualifying. So for... imagine we were playing like in a local store, okay. like IQ or whatever, yeah. and then you're like, we just like you're playing for top eight, and you're like, Mike, just just toss it to me. I only need four points, <laughs> and I should be like Roman. No, that <laughs> is destroy you per usual. <laughs> I think we haven't played in a store event for like two years, so. But what's our lifetime? Let's say okay. we just extrapolated our, our heads-up record across a million matches. What would the record be? Like, a million is, to zero. A million right? to zero and Michael J. But I mean, like, but those are like mostly like meaningless matches, right? Like you never played for a top eight with me, did you? Oh, wait, you did. Um, wait, wait, you never, we never played in a top eight, did we? We did. We did. We We never played in the finals of an event, did we? No, we we played in the the semifinals. Oh, no, no. no. We played in the finals. Oh, we have. That's right. Oh, you reminded me. (laughs) I've beaten Roman in every position that would crush someone's soul. (laughs) Played him for a top eight, played him in a top eight, played him in a finals. Uh, Let me tell you something, kids. Win the flip. (laughs) Just win the flip. Boom. You got Roman. (laughs) I want to rematch though. We haven't played an event in like 2 years. I wasn't good back then. I'm I'm better now. Yeah. Yeah. Um I have, I have more tricks. You were in the finals me. of the event with me. How bad could you have been? Oh, uh, I don't know. I played a interesting deck in that event. That was like my freshman year too. Nice. So Roman, you're going to graduate this year, right? Yeah, one more year, hopefully, right? Hopefully. So you're you're going to graduate. <laughs> How are we going to continue to do this podcast? I can still I think use this um alumni can use the um, the room's here, too. you Nice. So we can continue this after. <laughs> Sweet. All right. So this is an article. It's actually one of my, my personal all-time favorite articles. When we first started doing this series, it was actually the second article I wanted to do, but it wasn't really appropriate. So um, it has little or no strategic value as a magic article, but it's one of my favorite articles I ever wrote. All right. Okay. So the reason it's topical now is Hall of Fame season. So I, earlier this week, cast my ballot. Uh, for the 2017 Magic the Gathering Pro Tour Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame season. And <clears throat> this was an article explaining my ballot from 2006. So I don't know if you know very many of the names in this, but I I really, I heart this article. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I do. And there's some stuff that's factually inaccurate in it now, but only because of history, right? So they will say something like somebody retired, but then they came back to become a world champion, mm-hmm. right? This is uh, 11 years have happened since I, since I wrote this. It wasn't wrong at the time, right? But it, it became wrong later. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready? Let's go. One man's ballot. Mike Flores, August 25th, 2006. Competitors usually have to wait many years to enter their respective sports halls of fame. In Magic the Gathering, we make players wait 10 years from their debuts to qualify. However, Last June, a balding, 40-something, ex-wrestler named Randy the Natural Kotor was inducted in the UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship Hall of Fame, a mere four months after the knockout loss that told him it was time to hang up the trunks and open-fingered gloves. For many, Kotor's induction was academic. He's the only man in UFC history to wear both the heavyweight and light heavyweight belts. The story of Kotor's rise to light heavyweight championship is particularly compelling. After back-to-back losses against opponents that outweighed him by 50 to 80 pounds each, the aging Kotor moved down a weight class and found himself up against the Iceman, Chuck Liddell. A brutal pugilist and kickboxer who is considered by many pundits today to be the most talented fighter in the current UFC stable. He is certainly the most calculatingly heartless, hence the name Iceman. Just weeks shy of his 40th birthday, Kotor, a former NCAA All-American wrestler, wowed fans and silenced critics by beating the Iceman in a stand-up fight, knocking Liddell out in less than three minutes to win the interim light heavyweight title. Tito Ortiz, the brash bad boy of mixed martial arts and five-time defending champion, came back from injury, only to fall to Randy by unanimous decision after five rounds of an otherwise one-sided affair. With each victory by the older underdog, the fans cheered louder and louder. They loved to watch the natural. They loved to watch him win. Academic induction, right? The thing is, and detractors will point out, that Couture retired from MMA with an underwhelming record of 14-8. and Sure, he beat Liddell in a memorable, if brief, slugfest, but each of them... Return engagements in 2005 and 2006 ended with Iceman Knockouts of the Natural, the only two knockout losses of his career. And the first, Randy took a thumb in the eye, but ill-advisedly tried to beat the UFC's best stand-up boxer half sighted anyway. The scorecard, which does not record bad decisions after getting a thumb in the eye, just reads that Kotor went down to strikes at 206. The last return was a 128 knockout that solidified Liddell as the light heavyweight champion and ended the Naturals' in-ring career. And that wasn't even as quick as lost in a title bout. In his first fight after defeating Ortiz to become the undisputed champion, KOTOR's defense against Vitor Belfort ended in 49 seconds due to a cut. If your love for the competition ended with, and your analysis began at the numbers, you might see a fighter with a curious resume retired, the only one to wear both heavyweight and light heavyweight belts after all. But those win-loss record don't even approach guys like Matt Hughes at 39-4-0, the Iceman himself at 18-3-0, or Hoist Gracie at 13-3-3. Gracie, already a Hall of Fame inductee himself, has an interesting story to his numbers, more interesting than Randy's even, and possessed of a far more impressive practical run than 13-3-3 for those who know the history. The 39-year-old Hoist came back after 11 years away from the UFC's octagon to fight the indomitable aforementioned Hughes, a franchise fighter designated specifically to crush Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners last May. His loss to Harold Howard at UFC 3 was entirely a result of a misunderstanding between Brazilian and American rules. Had he known better, Hoist would just not have shown up to the fight he was too injured to compete in, rather than appearing just to throw in the towel. If you only cared about the numbers, you might overemphasize the three losses on Hoist's scorecard or certainly the eight on Randy's. You wouldn't think back to how surprising it was to see a small Brazilian chopping down American giants in the early days of MMA, or how inspiring the natural, fighting men ten years and more his junior with a smile on his face and all the pride in the world beaming out of him, may have been to the fan you might not remember how jaw-dropping it was to see a 39-year-old wrestler outbox Chuck Liddell, or how gratifying it was to see the braggart Ortiz silenced as he had to hand over his title after months of non-stop smack talk. Numbers don't lie, per se. But when we are talking about matters as emotional and uplifting and ultimately important as a Hall of Fame, and what it means for a puncher or player, to earn the right to stand in a Hall of Fame, and what kind of men we want as the icons and champions proudly representing our Halls of Fame. Mere numbers just can't speak the whole truth. Randy Couture, fighting at 43, as a beacon of all that can be possible, pure and unfettered and hopeful and right in the confines of a ring, alone but for another warrior, in a contest to see just who is going to floor whom, is everything that UFC wanted in a Hall of Fame fighter. They looked past the fairly unimpressive Raw records to let what was real and true shine forward and inducted a fighter just four months after his retirement because his contributions to the sport and the goodwill he brought out of the fans could not be encapsulated in the four minuscule keystrokes of 14 and 8. For all his intangible contributions to the UFC and the sport of MMA, The much-deserving Hall of Fame fighter Randy Couture pales in comparison to our Magic the Gathering Pro Tour Hall of Fame eligible and similarly statistically underwhelming candidate Brian Hacker. If you don't know anything about Brian Hacker, all I can tell you is that he is possibly the most influential Magic player ever to type a word or swing with a two-drop. I don't know if redundancy would have been discovered, but Hacker was the first player to break the idea of playing more copies of cards that did the same thing in order to smooth out his draws, rather than choosing cards based on power. He understood that Ergraders wasn't as good as Black Knight or a Pump Order, but that once you had already had 12 guys in your deck, you just grabbed the next best thing. He excelled with combo decks, control decks like the Humility Prayer build that shares his name, as well as weenie decks like Bad Moon Necropotence and White Weenie. A superlative constructed mind, Hacker will never be remembered primarily for this aspect of his game. The reason? He was quite simply the best limited mind ever to type a magic article. I like Tim Eaton more than you do. Once called Nick Eisel the future of American magic and marvel at the combat skills of Kenji Samura. But I can tell you without a doubt that no one has ever written on Limited like Brian Hacker. Today, you as a player who may have never read his work Use Hacker's limited strategies every time you play the 40-card decks. His influence in this realm of magic theory is too vast to commit to a short subsection of a multi-topic article, but can best be summed up in Randy Bueller's He Taught the World to Beat Down. Dave Price may be the king of beatdown, but Brian Hacker, at least for the purposes of the magic mainstream, is its father. A small achievement next to his grand steps in magic thought, Hacker is also simply the best turnip report writer of all time. In all aspects of the game, Brian excelled during his short career. He doesn't have the most impressive resume on the list, but led the Swiss at my first Pro Tour and holds a couple of premier event top eights. It should be obvious that I gush over his theory and his writing, but more than that, as the current color commentator for Pro Tour webcasts, I aspire to his Maher V. Davis. Brian never let the fun leave his work. His reports are full of strip clubs, picking up models and discos, and blue or orange hair. Wondering where he went? Literally the only bad thing you can say about Hacker and the dickheads is that they discovered poker before the rest of the pro tour. Everything I wrote in my ballad about Brian last year remains true. When you swing with a two-drop, you are tearing a page out of the hymnal of the Church of Hacker. When you play a suboptimal drop because it contributes to the whole of your deck, or the redundancy of your deck, rather than shining individually as a Tier 1 card, you are tossing your cap in the air and running through the fountains of the graduation ceremony at the (laughs) Brian Hacker Institute for Technological Arts. In the unlikely event that you roll into a club after a tournament money finish and swap tongue lashings with a blonde with whom you share no other lingual fluency, or perhaps elicit a screaming, AZUL! from a crowd of onlooking Latinas hungry to take in a little spectator magic, the gathering. You are clumsily attempting to cram your feet into the worn basketball sneakers of the Hacker of old, the one who broke other people's games rather than making them himself. Not considering Hacker for such arbitrary reasons as he didn't make three Pro Tour top eights, as if that isn't an indefensibly arbitrary cutoff point, is like looking at $100 bill you have to fork over after donking a team draft and denying that Benjamin Franklin is depicted on the same because unlike the one, Washington, 5, Lincoln, or 20, Jackson, Benji was never nicknamed POTUS. Luckily, the guys who figured out the Hall of Fame of American Currency didn't forget that, hack, uh, that Franklin was the first American, invented the lightning rod, barned Enoch Root at the beginning of Quicksilver, founded the University of Pennsylvania, America's first university, by the way, an institution of which both Richard Garfield and I are alums, and attended meetings of the la la real life hellfire club go ahead and google that his particular technological and community building contributions laid down for future generations of aspiring beatdown technicians internet writers and commentators can't be easily redacted to reduced sorry to abstract statistics provided for balloteers this does not mean that his contributions far and above all other candidates including those others on the same ballot who appeared on MTV as he did in his unique areas of specialty don't Tower Oven, even his most deserving co-nominees. To name the legendary mouthpiece of Team Dickhead, the promulgator of 16 land-limited decks, and perfect counterpoint to Randy Buehler, with anything less than Hall of Fame Inductee 2006, ultimately flies in the face of the joy that we experience with every horizontal grizzly bears. The camaraderie and learning and growth that come with shared experience, the pride we have that this this game is our chosen hobby, and that excitement, that rush, that can be birthed only via great personal risk. Vote number one, Brian Hacker. Seems like a good vote. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like that one? Yeah, I love this article. I mean, like it's, it's I was very passionate I about certain. Never of these heard votes. of Brian Hacker before. He is the greatest. Go look up Mahar So at the time I wrote this, obviously I, I said I was I was the colour commentator. You I, really, it, right? yeah. I was I was the Marshall Sutcliffe uh Van Loonen Scott Barks, okay? <laughs> Sitting next to uh um Randy Bueller and every like mm. I would just put on this cloak of imagination <laughs> and I was just like, What would Brian Hacker do? And sometimes I would say funny things, you know, like I, I was, you know, pretty widely considered a pretty good uh Commentate. I did Star City events also. Yep. Um, but I was no hacker. I, I I no one today is hacker. Hacker is so good, right? Like Davis is screwing up against um Bob Maher in the finals of Maher v. Davis, and like this deck is just saving him. And at one point, hacker's just like, I will worship whatever god this kid <laughs> down to. Us. And you're just like in the room when he says it. You're like, oh my god, he's so good. It's like everything he said was hilarious, and like you know was really apropos. I guess post war commentary is nicer now than it was. Like if you go back and listen to what me and Osip and yeah. Hacker and Kibler were like ten plus years ago, like I, I would just be like, I cannot believe that those counters are on that creature. This is going to be re- you know yeah. a horrible. Like. And it's only because his opponent's horribly mana screwed that he hasn't blown out already. I would just say stuff like that. (laughs) But now they're like, well, what do you think about the strategic efficacy of putting all of your Arcbound Ravager counters on the wrong creature? (laughs) (laughs) Well, seeing as that creature will be blocked, I don't think that he will gain any damage. However, he did sacrifice most of his permits. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's not interesting, you know. Anyway, Hacker was, can we say the nut high? (laughs) <laughs> he was the 9 Okay. Next vote. I got five of them. For a long oh, time, I God. was a five-vote <laughs> voter. In the winter of 1940, something very strange and special and earth-shattering happened. With a third issue of All-Star Comics, the Justice Society of America first appeared. The JSA were the first team of superheroes, the forerunners of the Justice League, Justice League of America, Justice League Europe, Justice League International, JLA, and other superhero teams that do not include the opening word justice, such as the uncanny X Men, Avengers, and Fantastic Four. The JSA were a queer bunch, a product of less logic and certainly precursors by many decades of the superhero deconstruction that would crown Alan Moore's Miracle Man and Watchmen with a godlike quill. It was thought in the golden age of comics that one could logically run a superhero team that would find room for such diverse participants as Dr. Fate, an accomplished sorcerer, the Spectre, an archangel of punishment and the infinitely powerful personification of God's vengeance, Starman, mad master of gravity itself, Batman, the world's greatest detective, Superman, a.k.a. Godman, and the Sandman. No, 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 no. Not Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Dream of the Endless, but the Golden Age Sandman, Wesley Dodds. An ordinary noir-esque adventure with no superhuman abilities, but instead a green business suit, fedora, and gas mask. No, really. That's all he's got. A gas mask. To the best of my knowledge, Dodd's parents were not gunned down in Crime Alley, with him looking on after a night at the movies. He did not train himself to the peak of human capability, surround himself underground with nocturnal rodent companions, or drive himself with a mad need born of unlimited potential and resources. He did not, to the best of my knowledge, teach himself archery. Wesley was not, as I recall, particularly scarred by anything. Though by adventuring in a green business suit, fedora, and gas mask, we can only assume that he badly damaged his sense of style. (laughs) Why did he become a costumed adventurer destined to join with an archangel and a strange visitor from another planet? Boredom. That is, he was bored and wanted something interesting to do. And really... Why is it that we do anything beyond that which is required to sustain ourselves, keep the roof up top and chicken nuggets and onion rings in our bellies? Isn't it a great deal of it, the desire to alleviate boredom, to create, or at least embrace, perhaps desperately sustain, a moment of excitement? You may have never thought about it like this, but a large percentage of tournament magic players are actually in it for the adrenaline rush. Roman this is, is pointing at himself right now. <laughs> you just want to feel anything, right? You're like the rest of your life is just feeling gray. like when you play in like those those top eight matches where people are watching. That feels great. Have I you ever had the cra- like on when you're playing like for top eight and the onlookers come and they start to clap? Have you ever had? I've applause? Never had clap for me. I've had applause when I was playing for top eight and like I landed my combo before, like like in a PTQ, right? Like not even like in a. I, mean, I played obviously like feature matches on camera and stuff like that. But you're just in the basement of the church with everybody else, and then you're, like, putting together stuff, and then you just... That is like... You're in a PTQ, yeah. dude. Like it's Yeah, it's like nothing else. But you just want to feel like, anything. Like, the rest of your life is gray. Because right? for regionals, there's a whole car of people that were, were waiting on me, so yeah. i didn't let them down. All right. Um, so anyway, let's continue. It's easy to appreciate the excitement of a game of magic when you're the one playing it. You play out an early game mistake. Your opponent errs on a critical turn, giving you a much-needed opening. You top-deck the Lightning Helix. This is literally just you and the regional (laughs) top. I screwed up. Then I I ripped my burn spell. (laughs) Literally you! Oh my god. In all my years of playing and watching Magic, though, there was only one match where it seemed every player in attendance was more excited for the man under the lights than they had been in one of their own games in months. Maybe ever. The match was Maher versus Davis in December of 1999. The man was Bob Maher Jr., local boy coming off a Granbury Top 8 in Kansas City earlier in the year, playing essentially the same deck, a master of the most complicated decisions possibly posed by Island. The adversary in this tale was Brian Davis, a talented rookie and eventual slow cavalier would go on to numerous quality finishes, apprenticed to such disparate mentors as Seth Byrne and Adrian Sullivan. But this time, against all mathematics, Brian was the back seat. It all started with an unmasked opening, followed by swamp dark ritual and necropotence. Davis had luck, or perhaps divine favor, that could aspire, nay, drive the methodical Brian Hacker to church itself. The game's every turn were all Davies, all like this. Bob opened up the finals on the ropes, and even when he top-decked Ivory Mask, and then the Enlightened Tutor to fetch Nullrod to stop the Nevinrolstis, to kill the Ivory Mask, to let the game-winning corrupt through, it never, never seemed that poor Bob stopped leaning against those ropes to make his way to the center of the ring to fight on two feet. Pundits and historians would say that Davis earned wins in each of his first four games, but that was little consolation to the Scrappy Maher who found himself in an improbable Game 5 for the Pro Tour, as Davis once again opened on unmasked Dark Ritual and the inexorable Skull. The will of the crowd palpably buckled as Davis played Wasteland after Wasteland, knocking down and kicking at the already mana crippled Maher. As both spectator and friend to Bob, I remember thinking, No. Not this way. Not like this. Over and over to myself, and looking around the room, as the collective color and life drained out of every eye glued to that giant monitor, as if that sorcery in Davis's hand were pointed at each of us, individually. I know I was not alone. But then Bob did it. Just Bob being Bob. It was Bob backing up the nickname, The Great One, somehow the stars aligned. The blue cards fell into place, and Maher ended a streak of drain life and corrupts stranding Davis without a single life point to fuel his necropotence. Brian would later say that he was rattled by the crowd, maybe never had a fair chance at all, as it seemed the entire city of Chicago cheered for every Maher play and booed so audibly the songs of displeasure tore into his sequestered finals area with every one of his top decks. Maybe. It was like the end of an old-time wrestling title bout. With the butts out of the seats, the hands together, the cheers from the millions and millions of fans watching on pay-per-view joined with those in the arena, physically lifting Hogan, the warrior, macho Sting or the Rock from their backs, defying chair shots to the head, salt in the eye, scalding coffee, violently hurled by curvaceous valets to make a man champion. One, two, three, in the face of all probability and defiance of any and all laws of the natural world bias fair none of it mattered then we were fans we were shocked fans we were ecstatic when bob won and when he emerged from the closed off set we could have borne him on our shoulders like some golden god c-3po but courtney was tearing through our throng to meet him, the fans and well-wishers parting like the Red Sea as the future Mrs. Maher left the ground to be caught, embraced, swung in some panoramic display for the ages, distilled like a World War II sailor's black-and-white photograph, Bob bending and dipping Courtney so low as he kissed her, that the world spun for us, too. We all knew one thing. We all thought the same thing. This game should be a postcard. But then, and collectively, if it's like this, if the Pro Tour can be like this, no Sandman will ever have us dreaming of boredom ever again. I could talk all day about Bob as a player, about the fact that he just topped four to Grand Prix cold, that he is one of the finest human beings you could ever meet, let alone shuffle cardboard against, that his mental game was second to John's at worst and close second that he really and truly deserved the nickname, the great one expounding on all the facts of why his triple crown, the incredible win over Eugene in Detroit, but compared to the most exciting pro tour finals of all time, capped for the crowd by a singular connection of B embracing C that image burned into our minds like the trapezoid a long time ago at the beginning of star Wars or Ferris big hair poster twisting together magic and victory and life in their own philosophical embrace? By comparison, really. That stuff is pretty boring. Vote number two. Bob Maher Jr. I wish more matches were like like that. Maybe you just wish that the commentators could write like this. (laughs) Just a guess. No? Yeah. All right, next section. Let's play a guessing game. Which of these popular characters would you like to read about? Or perhaps watch films concerning. Number one, whiny farm boy. Number two, underage four eyes with facial disfigurement. Number three, reluctant, vertically challenged gardener slash valet (laughs) with hairy feet. Number four, God. None of them are very interesting types in the abstract, right? What happens when you pair them up with their bitter rivals? You know, the glue that puts the story together. Number one, Darth, mother-loving Vader. Number two, Lord, mother-loving Voldemort. Number three, Sauron, the mother-loving Dark Lord. Number four, Jesse Custer. Now, all of a sudden, you're interested in Luke, even if he's no Han and you look past the fact that Samwise is short and fat. (laughs) The fact of the matter is that heroes are defined by the quality of the company they keep, and in this case, we're not talking about friends. What keeps Red Sox and Mets fans from jumping off their roofs? Nothing but the fact that the Yankees are such formidable rivals, and that success in the face of such villains makes any success, however fleeting and far between, all the sweeter. In competitive magic, we have two great icons. One of them is raiding Molten Corps these days instead of the Pro Tour, and one of them is already in the Hall of Fame. But as we measure the worth of heroes by who the battle, can there be any better candidate for the 2006 Hall of Fame than the latter icon's best friend and bitterest opponent? We always think of John Finkel and Steve O'Mahony Schwartz together. They made the top four of a team Pro Tour as two-thirds of Antarctica and played together most recently in Charleston. They were teammates and friends, grew up together, hung out at neutral ground, and in the same circles. In many ways, we see Steve defined by his relationship to John. And perhaps, as a disservice to him, was quite a fine individual record. That association with John ends up unfairly overshadowing Steve. Let's get a couple things out of the way. First of all, Steve was a hell of a player. He had a Pro Tour finals in Mainz and an individual championship on top of the D.C. Team Pro Tour long before Olivier Ruel was riding the countryside on the Wizards' dime. Steve was the true road warrior. He collected nine final tables before 2001, running up wins in the 1997-1998 season from Madrid to Zurich, stopping for a finals in Rio, and hooking up to Toronto. Forget about any great finishes actually on American soil. There were no travel awards back then, as there were no levels. The Pro Tour points were irrelevant to a gravy trainer like Steve. In order to just recoup his costs, Steve would have to consistently make top eight. Luckily, he did. Forget about that. There are half a dozen players in this ballot with resumes comparable to Steve's with premier event, finals, and wins. To be a hero, you have to kick somebody's ass. To be a hero worth talking about, let alone inducting into the Hall of Fame, the ass you kick had better be packing a red lightsaber, glowing down from a tower in Mordor, or, you know... Ruling the universe from a golden seat in heaven or something. You want to make the Hall of Fame? Take out God. Okay. Steve Omohony Schwartz. That Pro Tour win on Steve's resume? Do you know who he took out to get it? His best friend, John Finkel. Steve is the only player to have beaten John for a Pro Tour, something that even mortal lock Bob Maher with his impeccable mental game failed to do in the Tinker Mirror match at Worlds 2000. And that's not even Steve's impressive win. In Magic, Chris Pakula maintains that the toughest task any player can attempt is to take on John Finkel in the Forbidden vs. Drago matchup, or alternatively, Drago vs. Forbidden matchup. How about the first round of Maher's Chicago, when Steve went heads up in the Forbidden mirror to the tune of 2-0? John being John, would go on to recover and score top 16. So having accomplished the most difficult task in tournament magic on top of winning a pro tour in the face of the game's then undisputed fiercest competitor, you'd think that was enough firepower for Steve's resume as a giant killer, right? Not by a long shot. How about ending the man's career? Sitting next to John in the draft, Steve-O received a 14-card Odyssey pack from Finkel with a missing rare. After the draft, he asked if John had picked a white card. Yeah, John replied, I took Wayward Angel. Steve walked away satisfied, but when he played Eric Taylor in the second round of the draft and started discussing his um match with Finkel, Taylor corrected him, informing the PTLA4 champion that John had actually drafted Kirtar's Wrath. With a head full of steam and vengeance on his mind, Steve headed into the feature match pit ready to go to war with his best friend on the other side. After the match, the two had words, most of which are not publishable here. But Steve made a valid point. If John didn't want to share the information, he should have told Steve so instead of lying to him. General consensus amongst the assembled was that Finkel, a poker enthusiast who is a result used to lying to his friends in bits competition, was wrong to jeopardize his friendship, and that no match was worth it. Steve admitted he wouldn't be pissed off forever, but maintained he should be forgiven for staying angry through the day. After seeing the whole drama play out, Randy Bueller said. A lot of people were saying Steve should have thrown his deck at John or never forgiven him. But I think ending his career was good enough. John later apologized for his error in judgment. The full match report can be found here. I don't know that I, read that. I wrote that part. I think I'm just excerpting it. Mm-hmm. Does that sound like I wrote it in this era? Not really, right? Now, obviously, the whole career ending didn't take. And even before the Hall of Fame got John reinvited to each and every big show, he went on to an additional 40-card top eight success. But we didn't know that at the time. Really, Steve-O's two Swiss wins over John, particularly the Wayward Angel fight, had a great deal of dramatic effect on us at the time. Fact is, Steve was a road warrior, pro tour champion, and awesome heads up against the best at a time where being insanely better than everyone else just wasn't rewarded as it is today. His numbers don't look as good as they should because he excelled before a lot of the payouts players received today were in place. And yet Steve reminds us that he retired third in both winnings and pro points. Yep. You can pick up your jaw now. I named Steve Omanui Schwartz hero, brother to dragons and dragon slayer both. Vote number three Steve Omanui Schwartz. So, um, just on that point, they didn't have pro levels, they had fewer per tour points and mm-hmm. way smaller payouts. So, like, Steve was awesome, but like, if you just looked at his counting stats against other players from other eras, he would have way less money because there was less money for, for getting wins or less money for, you know, less points. So, but he retired a third anyway. Uh, Next one. Last year, these were the players I voted for. John Finkel, Dave Humphreys, Brian Hacker, Dave Price, Hammer Rainer. Because I voted using some sort of bullshit numerical system, I think I got a lot of my votes wrong. How can you reduce something you love, which you are entrusted to shape for posterity, positively affecting the lives of people you respect and want to see doing well, to numbers? Can you quantify the palpable feeling of hope? What is the square root of inspired play? At one point, I had Alan Comer leading multiple categories, and somehow he fell off my ballot. Luckily, he still made it. I definitely should have voted for Alan. In hindsight, I don't know how I missed voting for Steve or Chris Pakula. At least I'm voting for them now. Hopefully, in reading the above section, you can see what a mortal lock Steve should have been. But the fact of the matter is, if we had started the Hall of Fame a few years ago, Chris would have been unanimous too. I'm not going to try to be dramatic or funny in this section, because frankly, we're talking about the meddling mage. And as with all things Pakula, the arguments to be made must be sober and serious. In the early years of the pro game, Pakula was one of the most feared players on tour. He racked up multiple top eights before Finkel had his first final table. Coming out of Pro Tour 4, Chris was riding a top eight into my first Pro Tour, Dallas, where he followed up with another top four. Though he stepped away from the game in large part at the end of the 1990s, Chris has essentially never stopped putting up quality numbers, sneaking into a world's 1998 top eight and consistently performing at the Grand Prix level when he bothered to play. Just last year, he was in the finals of the essentially virgin legacy Grand Prix Philadelphia with a deck of his own design. That's what Chris did, and that's what in Philadelphia he proved he can still do. What you may not immediately understand is that Magic was different 10 years ago. Not only did Chris battle without the advantage of Magic Online, the networks he used to reach success were smaller. When Dave Price won Pro Tour LA in 1998, it was just Chris and Dave and their tiny core group fighting in a pretty insular kitchen table environment. While, unlike certain other writers, I think it's asinine to try to diagnose players with mental disorders whose exploits and shortcomings I might know only from reading other people's internet accounts, extrapolating flimsy arguments with only passing tangents to fact, I will argue with great enthusiasm that Pakula is one of Magic's most fiercely honest stars that I can't imagine him ever cheating at this game we all love. Plainly put, in the dubious Wild West of the early year's ballots, Chris is not just a good vote, but a vote for a good man. Vote number four, Chris Pakula. I have voted for Chris Pakula. Every single year he was eligible for the Pro Tour Hall of Fame, with the exception of year one. Had I voted for him in year one, I would have not had to cast a single one of those other ballots. <laughs> just putting it up. I consider all of these other Pakula votes my penance for not voting <laughs> At the risk of seeming anticlimactic, my last vote goes to Itaru Ishida. While I'm on friendly or better terms with everyone else on my ballot, I've never actually ever spoken to Itaru, and therefore have no clever things to say beyond the fact that as a deck designer and total package, Ishida greatly impresses me. The reason I regret not voting for Alan Comer last year is I did not properly recognize him as the designer of Turbo Xerox and miracle Grow. As someone who spent most of last year's Pro Tours in the booth, watching Kenji Samura go from talented technician to multiple top eights to player of the year, there is one thing that seemed unavoidable to notice. Kenji would not have made those top eights without Itaru. In Philadelphia and Los Angeles, both the reigning player of the year was piloting Ishida Control X. I'm sure Kenji's transition from unknown to best player on the planet in a few short months was a point of great pride for Itaru. And the fact of the matter is, he deserves recognition for the contributions he made not just those incredibly visible finishes but for fostering Japanese magic for the past 10 years. Itaru is the godfather who helped propel the Japanese team limited greatness while the rest of the pro tour was still twiddling our thumbs. And while he pairs his incredible longevity with only a single pro tour top 8 in fact his signature team limited finals. The ridiculous 17 grand prix top 8s behind only Olivier Ruel and Alex Schwartzman should be credibility enough. To me, The vote for Ishida is important because it recognizes not just his amazing individual Grand Prix performances and mentoring of one of today's finest players, and arguably a dominant nation of similarly fine players, but the vitally significant collaborative network element of pro-level magic that is so often overshadowed by the individual successes of a solitary talented team member. Vote number five, Itaru Ishida. Back to strategy tech or whatever next week, I assume. Love, Mike. What did you think of One Man's Ballad? What a cool, like, bunch of little kind of short stories in there. I, I, mean I mean, I, look, I, we, this is basically a podcast of, like, me reading old articles I wrote. Yeah. Like, I love this article. Like, it's just, I think this is my favorite article I've read, written of myself. Like, and it has, like, no magic to it, right? It's yeah, just, but it's it's a nice, like look into the history of the game, right? Like, I didn't know it. I, I mean, I knew about, like... Have you ever heard of any of those? So, like, yeah. Three of them are in the Hall of Fame now, so uh, Bob Maher Jr. is in the Hall of is, Fame, yeah. uh, Steve Alonni-Short is in the Hall of Fame, and Chris Pakula is I, like, I know Steve... Chris Pakula is in the Hall of Fame? Well, if Mark Rosewater gets his way, he sure will be in a week. <laughs> uh, I do know about Steve because um, I've team-drafted with Dan, his his brother. Well, I see Dan every week. We hang, we're hang. we in a, in a circle of friends, so... But Steve is, you know, a dad and... Yeah, yeah, of course. wife. Because this is from years and years ago. Well, this is from 11 years ago. Yeah. And I'm talking about events that happened 10 years before this. Pro has been around for two decades now. That's crazy. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll back. I buried the lead. I was just, like, start on Hacker. I, it's insane to me that Hacker never made the, uh, the Hall of Fame. He's, he is... I hate to say he's the great one in in an article that features Bob Maher. <laughs> Bob Maher is literally but he's great like man. the the father of he's the father of limited strategy. He's the father of beatdown. So he's he's, he's literally, literally the father of beatdown. What <laughs> I mean, I wrote who's the beatdown, right? Yeah, but like the like the concept of like just playing low drop. Like people would just play like three threes for four and two fours for four and stuff in their limited decks. And Hacker and the Dickheads would just eviscerate them with these 15 and 16 land decks with, like, two drops in them. Just like, get in there, get in there, figure out how to finish the games, like, put so much pressure on And no one outside of San Diego, in the entire world, the city of San Diego was the only place people understood how to play the beatdown. Yeah, you don't what? even believe this, right? No one even understood how. When, so, like, when, when was this? Like, give me like 97. Your... Okay. They no, didn't even understand how. So then what happened was... Hacker made friends with guys like Chris Pakula and John Finkel and disseminated their technology to other parts of the world. But, like, out, I'm telling you, outside of the city of San Diego, no one even understood the concept of how they played limited. It's similar to Madison today. So today, Madison is the best limited city in the yeah. world. Like, you ever play against Madison guys? I've, I've met them. Okay, so I've played <laughs> I, against I like Madison Dragon. guys a lot. Even the crappy Madison guys are better than, than the pro-level players in almost every other city right so like which is an insane thing to say right but like it, there's only so many qualifications that go around in a geographical region but if you just look at some of these guys whenever they show like literally guys that you see from 10 years ago will just show up for a grand prix unlimited and then win it if they're from madison and like their culture is completely different i'm on some mailing lists with uh with uh, some madison limited players so they just post their um their limited decks and like talk about their pick orders and stuff like that it it's just not the same as drafting with, uh, with people from... I mean, it's I, I've also been on a team with Ben Stark, right? So that's a very special experience. i mm-hmm. with Huey Jensen for a long time. Um, so I have had exposure to the best limited players ever, but like as a culture, the San Diego guys were like 20 levels deeper than the Madison guys are today, because there's such a huge imbalance, right? Like Madison guys might be the best in the world, but everybody has access to magic online, so yeah, technology disseminates. There was no magic online in 1997. Right, So you have these basically four guys, four human beings who are better than everyone else in the Pro Tour Unlimited and rocked every Limited Pro Tour. They were like all four, like three of the four of them would be top 16 to top eight every single Limited Pro Tour until the rest of the world caught up. Can you imagine this? Hacker was one of them. Hacker was the most talented communicator but not the most talented player on the team. Like Truck Bowie, Daddy U, mm-hmm. Super Zila. Um, Egor framan, Like, they're... You know any of these names? Anyway. Hacker, like, I think he runs an escape room now. He worked for Opera Deck for a while. I actually was super inspired while I was reading this. I actually want to win a, a PPTQ, fly to San Diego, and... And play the and RPTQ take, with? With Hacker. Like, I'm friends with him now. So, like, I would totally be like, Hacker, if I win a PPTQ, and I say... I commit to flying to... I commit to flying to San Diego, will you play with me? I'll take... Minimum a Grand Prix champion with us, right? So like I could take a Grand Prix champion what or a Starship A regional champion. Hacker is so good. Hacker like has played PTQ's cold in formats he's never heard of before, and then just won. them. Like he's he he played the best game of Magic I'd ever seen in '99. I actually th- I actually am now inspired to do this. I have like because if I win a preliminary if, pro you tour would, if you win a pbtq now you can you can bring any two people you want Yeah, Our so i would people. take any anyone you want who's not, not i feel like a bunch of friends who would be very happy to be the third right yeah be like yo random pro tour champion <laughs> would you like to play with me and brian hacker on the pro tour right i mean i haven't i haven't asked hacker this yet <laughs> <laughs> i also haven't won a pbtq yet but i was just like i think i'm gonna facebook him when i get home i'll be like yo if i win this and i commit to flying to san diego will you play with me so you're the, my favorite. PPTQ format. He hasn't played Magic in 10 years, by the way. I don't think he knows about it, the, for, for the For the RPTQ and the Pro Tour, it's... Um, Actually, team, is it... Chapin told me he saw Hacker at Grand Prix Vegas. Okay. So maybe Hacker played. I, would I have to supply all the decks? <laughs> well, so, you know, a standard of modern a legacy player, right? I That's don't have 12 Eidolons. <laughs> I need eight Eidolons, right? We need eight I'll Eidolons. be using mine so I need, you can find okay, your I own. Eight I, I own I own five idolons. I think so <laughs> let's get some more idolons. I was like what do I need I need eight Goblin Gods I only have four Goblin Gods <laughs> so we're, wait wait the standard deck won't have Goblin Gods or idolons. that one's gonna have like the Raging Kenra right <laughs> so we're gonna go like probably go like Raging Kenra deck is it Raging Kenra what's the name of it Earthshaker Kenra Earthshaker Kenra we're gonna have Earthshaker Kenra Eidolon Eidolon that's gonna be the squad oh my god Disgusting. What do Disgustingly you mean? good. I like. I, I'll play either of the two old formats. I don't want to play the standard. I, I I could play Earthshaker Kendra format, but I think the best tactician should play. Should play the legacy format. No, or standard standard format. Hacker should, but whatever hacker wants to play, I'll let him play. I'm like super excited about this idea. if I qualify for the Arpen? You're Q, taking me, and you. <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> Whoa! What? So hold. Let's 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 suspend reality for a second, okay? If you qualify and I don't, yeah. okay, right. This is that's certainly a possibility. You would really take any of your other friends instead of me. Do you have any idea what my record in team events is? <laughs> Who's our third then? Miles. You can do better. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you kidding? I have like. There's a dozen Pro Tour champions on my Facebook page where we're like, whoever qualifies, we we want in. They just haven't played, you know. They just like, maybe I'll bring you along. We'll see about it. Maybe (laughs) it's three formats. I'll play Legacy Burn. You can play Modern Burn. Oh, there's open communication. Oh my god, I could I could just play both of our decks. (laughs) It would be necessary considering Uh, how you play your lands. I love you but no, I I don't believe you. Okay. <laughs> How could I believe that? You watched like one match Ripe Hunter. And you made a mistake with your land every single turn. You literally got what's the days card? What do you call it? Uh Oh, I got like I mean, you stone had lethal lightning bolt. And you oh. could have just played your land before casting it and you got spell pierced. Like I just said, what were you bluffing? You had one other card in your hand, it was a land, and your lightning bolt was lethal, and you had an untapped land in play. I do not understand why the land was in your hand. I wasn't expecting the spell pierce. <laughs> oh was it was not a commonly played blue card. In it Legacy? was he was no this is this is modern. He was playing modern, Infinity. whatever. He was playing Affinity. He wasn't playing. No, he a... wasn't, he was playing Tassiger. He's played Tassic or Grixis. Oh, I, I won this match. Yes, yeah. and you got spell pierce. <laughs> oh, that's right. lethal spell Oh, uh. You lost the game that he went to one. He went to one just, like, nuking himself to draw cards with, like, his card drawers or whatever. You lost that game. <laughs> I'm like... I do not understand how this is feasible. The opponent has willingly gone to one with his own fetch lands. Let's not talk about And he about was not a Death Flight. Shadow deck. I mean, he would have been a Death Shadow deck, you know, no. if it had been a week later, right? But at the time, he was just a, just a Drix's Taziger deck. <sighs> yes, I know that you won. I'm telling you, I'd be like, bro, a moment. Maybe you should play that freaking mountain before you can. <laughs> so you have two untapped. It would be lethal if it resolves. All right. Oh man, I'll play the legacy. Oh man, I don't want to team with you if I win. I'm <laughs> so good at legacy burn. Oh, I'm just thinking about how good I am at it. Oh Fire blasting god. people, price of progressing people. Oh my god, Roman, you don't know the experience, do you? Have You ever tapped two and had your opponent take like ten? I'm pretty sure on this podcast and another episode, you've asked me this exact same question about casting price of progress with like five non basics on the Have you ever had the experience of casting price of progress and your opponent just wastelanding all of his own lands? Because that's also pretty hilarious. <laughs> they're like, I guess I'll take two. And there's Wasteland, two of their own lands. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. You don't know what it's like, do you? No, I don't. You ever played an Eidolon on the second turn when your opponent has. I've never l- played Eidolon Legacy before. When you play it on the second turn, your opponent's playing Storm, and they're just like, shake their head. I have one card in my deck that could remove that from play. <laughs> to find it, I will take six damage. <laughs> Let's play another I don't want So good. Oh, okay, so we're we're definitely looking forward to the team. This is a two-hour episode of the Ancestral no. Recall podcast. Okay. It starts at It starts at o one. So oh. we're only fifty three minutes. Oh, what the heck? Two hours? All right. I really enjoyed this episode. I'm yeah, so happy you're, you're a pretty good to share it right with now. you. Yeah, it was good. I, I definitely. It's. It was like a little story. A little, little snippet like of, snippets little of magic, magic history. All right, so what do we got to do now? We got to get this to Kyle right now so we can get it up. I told yeah, him you were I mean, I mean, to send it, it. Literally right now after we right, stop so recording. Boom. Thank you, Canada. This is the Ancestral Recall Podcast. Hopefully we'll be back again soon. I don't know about Roman Fusco. We'll, we'll and, be back next week. And all worry. of his not being here for recording every week, which is uh, all his fault. I'd just like to point out, that in the interim, since Roman hasn't been here, I did something like seven episodes of the Top Eight Magic Podcast, also okay. on Canada Prime with a, with Brian BDM. David Marshall. Uh, and you know, we had a little Matt Ferrando side action, oh. yeah. Um, okay. So we we had some of those uh, since since Roman's not been here. Uh, please, if you like this podcast, share it. If you like this podcast, like it. If you like this podcast, go to iTunes and put a five star rating so that people think that it's great, put a review. If you don't like this podcast and you are for some reason listening right now, just send an S, you know, to Roman underscore Fusco. At, on yeah. the Twitter. Not like Roman Fusco, one word. He forgot forgot the password to that account. So it no, made it like eight years ago. It's stuff. Roman underscore Fusco now. Just send him like, Roman, I think your podcast is demonstrably inferior to the professor's YouTube videos. Like, you could just say that. If, you, if that's how you feel, you could say that. Don't write that on iTunes. On iTunes, you'd be like, Answers so Recall podcast is a peerless podcast rivaled only by top-level podcasts and top-eight magic. <laughs> like, you could say that and then put a five-star rating. But if you have something nasty to say, just be like, boom, at Roman underscore Fusco. You could also go at, underscore, uh, at five of Flores. But that would just increase my Twitter stats and notoriety if you do that. So, you know, throwing some shade my way, I would appreciate, also appreciate the feedback, also appreciate the Magic of the Skills of Bob Maher Jr., Brian Hacker, Stephen O'Mahony schwartz Chris Bakula, and Itaru Ishida. May he rest in peace. All right, this has been the Ancestral Recall Podcast. Signing off. Goodbye. Right.